Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, cultural enrichment, and all-inclusive fares. Discover more at viking.com. Welcome to the Best New Ideas in Money, a podcast from MarketWatch. I'm Stephanie Kelton. I'm an economist and a professor of economics and public policy at Stony Brook University. And I'm Jeremy Elshin, the editor of MarketWatch. Each week, we explore innovations in economics, finance, technology, and policy that rethink the way we live, work, spend, save, and invest. So today, we're going to do something a little different. We're taking questions from you. We put out a request, and we got great questions on a wide range of topics from crypto to insurance to inflation. All right, our first question is from Jade in New York. Hi, Jeremy and Stephanie. I have a question about cryptocurrency. I've heard that a new law has been passed that allows investors to buy stock in certain crypto coins. Could you please explain this a bit more and let me know what the pros and cons of purchasing this sort of stock would be? This is a great question, Jade. But let me start off by saying we're not going to be dispensing any actual investment advice here today. I think what Jade was asking about is the recent approval of the first Bitcoin exchange-traded fund, ETF. It's the first time that investors can get exposure to crypto in their brokerage or retirement accounts. Crypto enthusiasts and the ETF industry are bracing for the start of trading of the first Bitcoin futures ETF at the New York Stock Exchange. So an ETF is an exchange-traded fund. It's basically a mutual fund that lets you trade different assets like stock. In the case of the Bitcoin ETF, when you buy shares of that ETF, you're not actually buying Bitcoin. You're buying Bitcoin futures contracts. So a lot of people will say, well, if you really want to hold crypto, a much better way to do it might be just buying it directly. You can invest in companies that are associated with crypto. There's a wide range of them now, including even Tesla or crypto miners like Marathon Digital and Riot Blockchain. But I'd suggest you do your research or even talk to an advisor before making any of those moves. So there's a lot of regulatory uncertainty when it comes to Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. There are questions about whether governments might at some point feel that their own monetary systems are in one way or another threatened, the financial system more vulnerable as a result of the proliferation of cryptocurrencies. Doge was supposed to be a joke, and then it became wildly popular. There are definitely parts of the space that qualify as a joke, like Doge, Shiba, the fact that that has skyrocketed. And at the same time, there's $2.6 trillion in assets now. So we kind of, no matter what you think, have to take it more seriously. And when you talk to the biggest names in crypto and say, what's the number one risk in the space? They say US regulators, you know, because for the stroke of a pen, they could regulate the whole thing out of existence. And sometimes I'll say to people, not entirely jokingly, that, you know, a lot of these cryptocurrencies are basically one regulation away from seeing their value collapse almost to zero. Right. And that's the number one thing anyone should consider before putting any real money into crypto is it's hugely risky and speculative. Whether or not you want this, you know, in your 401k, that's got to be your number one question. 
this belief that some people in the crypto community have, this idea that maybe one day the prices that are posted in the grocery store will be in Bitcoin or some other cryptocurrency, and we won't actually be using the dollar or other state currencies to conduct much of our everyday transactions. So you'd be hard pressed to get through life, right, in a world in which things are actually priced in Bitcoin. You'd have to be allowed to hold them in that case. Right. And that's why uh, a lot of crypto proponents are pushing things like stable coins or you know, tied to other assets that are more reliable stores of value. Yeah, it's functioning almost exclusively as a speculative asset where people want to hold it because the expectation is that the price is going to go up. And if you think the price is going to go up, why would you spend it today? Why wouldn't you hold it? It doesn't function like a real currency functions. And part of the reason for that is precisely because of the volatility. The price swings are just too extreme. So it isn't suitable to perform the kind of function of money that we're all used to. Might it one day? Maybe. But it isn't currently. So Jay, to try to sum up, I think the number one thing to think about is the risk involved. What's your own risk tolerance? And you know how risky are these assets? And you know they are fairly speculative, risky assets right now. So if you're really not sure what to do, I would say, you know, talk to a financial professional. So the next question is about inflation, and that's a topic everyone is talking about right now. In fact, we recently did an entire episode on inflation. We talked about the Federal Reserve, and we asked whether we should be rethinking the way that we currently fight inflation. Since that episode dropped, there's been more big news. The Labor Department reported that prices are rising at their fastest rate in 31 years. Americans are now paying more for shelter, food, fuel, medical care, cars and trucks, and many other goods and services. Winter is coming, and the Energy Department predicts home heating bills could jump as much as 54 percent this year compared to a year ago. Prices are rising for food, energy, shelter, used cars and new cars. So, Stephanie, when we did the inflation episode, we spent a lot of time talking about disagreements about how to even measure it. That really sets up this next question we got from Mike in Austin. Can y'all explain the difference between PCE and PCI, how we get those different measurements, why the Fed prefers PCE, and why different inflation measurements variously include or exclude food, energy, and housing? Thanks so much. So I think Mike is asking about the two most common ways of measuring inflation. So the CPI is the one we're probably most familiar with. It's the Consumer Price Index. And this one comes out of the Bureau of Labor Statistics. The PCE, that's Personal Consumption Expenditure. And that one comes out of the Bureau of Economic Analysis. So Jeremy, we talked about all of this in that episode we did. The different baskets that are created and what goes in the baskets and how the prices of the goods and services in each of the baskets is tracked and how the weights are assigned and how we basically come up with ways to measure inflation. And the biggest difference between the CPI and the PCE is really the baskets themselves. It's what goes in the baskets and how much weight is given to each of the different items in those baskets. The consumer price index is based on a survey of what households are actually buying, whereas the PCE is based on surveys of what businesses are actually selling. 
So the headline inflation rate that we're hearing a lot about today is the consumer price index. That's the one that's running hot at 6.2% as of last month. There's the headline rate, and then there's also something called core, like core PCE or core CPI. The core CPI takes out the volatile components of energy and food. So it gives you a way to think about what's happening to prices in the economy, subtracting away the impacts of rising energy costs and transportation costs and food costs. Right, but for most people, those are the biggest expenses. You know, the roof over our head, the energy, and then the food we buy or transportation are the biggest expenses for most households. You can make the argument that this is where most people will feel the pain the most is when those costs go up. That's true, and that's why the CPI is the price index that's used to adjust benefits for things like Social Security over time. So when food and energy are getting more expensive, people who are receiving Social Security benefits can see their benefits increase along with inflation, and we call that a cost of living adjustment. And so, you know, seniors just received the biggest cost of living adjustment than they've seen in a long, long time. Are there times that the price of one item can dramatically skew the overall number? You talked about the volatility of food and energy. Is that the argument for looking at inflation without them? Exactly right. So you could have a spike in the price of one or two items in the basket, and it would pull the entire index up, and it would reflect you know, broad-based inflation when it's really one or two things driving it. It's often thought that stripping those out and focusing on core is better. But you could also have core inflation spiking because of some weird thing like we saw through the pandemic where automobile and truck prices are increasing because we've got problems with semiconductors and we can't get the chips that are needed and other things going on. And so this one item in the basket, cars and trucks, both new and used, increasing rapidly was pushing the entire index much higher. I guess, Stephanie, the reason we need all these metrics is how weird this current moment has been. Like some of the forces driving up prices are harder to capture with all the supply chain issues and the impact of the pandemic. Is that really why we need this whole alphabet soup of metrics? I mean, there's a whole history behind this. The Federal Reserve is responsible for fighting inflationary pressures, and the Fed used to rely on CPI. That was their preferred way of tracking what's happening to prices in the economy. And some people at the Fed still do like to focus on headline inflation using the CPI. But in 2000, the Federal Reserve took a look at different ways of measuring inflation and decided that they actually preferred to target PCE over the CPI, and not just PCE, but core PCE. So that is the measure that the Federal Reserve relies on most, but governments adjust benefits really by relying on what's happening to headline consumer price index. The thinking really is that headline inflation is important because it gives you a better sense of what consumers are experiencing right now, whereas core inflation, because it takes out those volatile energy and food components, is supposed to give you a better picture of where inflation might be headed in the future. Have you ever wondered whether you should buy life insurance, insurance for your phone or your dog, or why we even have insurance? After the break, another listener submission. And Jeremy and I wanted to get in on the action. So we're going to ask each other some questions. ADP knows anything you hear. 
Anything you don't hear, anything you kind of heard, anything you weren't supposed to hear and now have to pretend like you didn't can change the world of work. From HR to payroll, ADP designs forward-thinking solutions to take on the next anything. Welcome back to the best new ideas in money. Before the break, we heard your questions about cryptocurrency and inflation. Listener AD sent us this question about insurance and whether or not it should even exist. Basically, AD says there are so many different kinds of insurance policies like health and auto, home, life, and the list goes on. Do we really need all of them? You know, insurance is one of those things we so take for granted, but in some ways, it was one of the most important inventions in the history of finance, maybe even the history of our civilization. I know that sounds crazy, but you can trace it all the way back to the Middle Ages, originally to cover the risk of merchant ships at sea never returning. And so why are people going to take the risks of making those trips if there's no way to protect themselves from those bad outcomes? But it wasn't until there were a lot of advances in math and understanding of probability, really until the mid-18th century, where mathematicians and clergymen are credited with the very first insurance policies in the way we understand it now. Uh, It was the Widow's Fund for the clergymen in Scotland. Basically, all insurance does is pool our collective risk together. And what insurance does is calculates the chance of some of these things happening, and it puts a price on what it should cost to protect from those outcomes. It's why most insurance companies have the word mutual in their name, because it really is a mutual agreement that we're sharing that risk together, because we don't know which of us is going to have these unfortunate things happen to them. The invention of insurance also then led to the social safety net. It's why we have social security, unemployment insurance, and Medicare. I mean, it's better to have insurance from both an economic and a quality of life standpoint. It's better for society if we have insurance systems that help build some safeguards in and provide some resiliency as opposed to cleaning up a mess after it happens, like a hurricane. Of course, insurance has gotten much more sophisticated. You can insure against virtually anything. Any business can protect against certain commodity prices going wildly out of control or anything that's a threat to their survival. I remember when I bought my first car. It was a used car, but it was a big deal for me. I fell in love with this car. And I had the car less than a month, and I had gone to a movie theater, see a movie with a friend. And we came out of the movie theater, and I walked to where I knew I had parked the car, and it wasn't there. And you wander around, and then you come back to where you know you left the car, and I spot all the broken glass on the ground. And it was such a punch in the gut because I love the car, and it was gone. And I had this huge car loan. And thankfully, the insurance company paid out, and I was able to get another car and not continue making payments on something I no longer had. You know, when I was a reporter covering New York City and I would be sent out on all the crazy things that happened to people, you know, I remember getting to the scene of an accident in Central Park where this really promising computer engineer was walking, I think, with his girlfriend or fiance, and a tree fell and hit him on the head. His life was heading in such a different direction, and the idea that just at a moment, notice some random event can completely destroy everything is the way you need to think 
about the importance of insurance. You know, it's easy to say, well, why should I pay for the other dumb decisions people make? But you never know who's going to lose the lotteries in life. Every time we walk out the door, we're taking risks. And I think what insurance does is protect us to a point from those bad outcomes. Of course, that doesn't mean everyone's experience dealing with insurance companies, anyone who's had to you know, contest what's covered and what isn't by their health insurance knows how frustrating it can be. You think you have full coverage and then suddenly something catastrophic happens and the insurance company informs you that actually you don't have the coverage. Yeah, not all insurance products or insurance companies are created equally. Every time you buy a train ticket now, they say, do you want insurance on your travel? Every time you buy any piece of electronics, you're asked, do you want to buy an extended warranty to cover damage in the next few years? And a lot of those products, if you talk to experts, they'll say those are terrible deals. So not everyone needs every type of insurance. Okay, now it's our turn. Jeremy, I have a question that I've been wanting to ask you. We did an episode about how to hack your brain to be better with money. And in that episode, I talked about my kids and how different they are when it comes to spending or saving their money. And I know you have twins, so I'm sort of curious. Are they the same when it comes to how they think about and handle money? Like your kids, they're totally different. One of my sons thinks much more about the implications of how he spends his money. He recently went with friends to a restaurant on his own for the first time and asked about how tipping worked, which became a very lengthy discussion. And uh, he digested this. And then when he came back from dinner, he said that his friends didn't understand and they grossly undertipped, but really felt terrible about it. My other son still prefers to uh, work with the bank of mom and dad and not take in direct interest in his finances yet, but I'm sure he will. So here's a question I've been wanting to ask you, Stephanie. Do you always have that economist hat on, like when you're home with your husband and kids or you go shopping? Are you still looking at things through the lens of your day job? I think if you ask my family, they would say yes. I probably would say that I'm able to sort of take off that hat and be more like a normal person. I think my family probably thinks that I walk around the house giving economics lectures half the time. So I guess in certain circumstances, if I'm making a big purchase, I probably spend more time thinking about those things. So we have this deck, right? And it's attached to the backside of the house. And I noticed this sagging on one part of the deck in the corner. And I thought, that doesn't look right. So we called some contractors and they came in and they said, you guys should really tear down the whole thing and rebuild it. And it was summertime and lumber prices were going crazy. And my husband was just thinking, we have to replace the deck. Let's just do the deck. And I was saying, well, lumber prices are currently going through the roof. And this is a particularly bad time that I had to launch into this whole thing about, you know, what was happening to lumber prices and how we were going to end up paying a lot more for the deck as a result. So who won this argument? We replaced the deck. Thanks so much to everyone who submitted a question for this episode. Please keep them coming. You can drop us a line at bestnewideasinmoney at marketwatch.com. Thanks for listening. And you can subscribe to the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like what you heard, please leave us a review. To learn more about inflation, cryptocurrency, and insurance, head to marketwatch.com. I'm Stephanie Kelton. And I'm Jeremy Olshan. 
The Best New Ideas in Money is a podcast from MarketWatch, produced by Best Case Studios. Devin Maverick-Robbins and Suzanne Myers are our producers, and our associate producer is Hannah Libowitz-Lockard. Our researcher is Alana Myers. The executive producer for Best Case Studios is Adam Pincus. For MarketWatch, Melissa Haggerty is the executive producer, and the associate producer is Katie Ferguson. Jeremy Binks is our news editor. This episode was mixed by Melissa Pons. The Best New Ideas in Money theme was composed by Sam Retzer. Stephanie Kelton is an economist and a professor of economics and public policy at Stony Brook University and not part of the MarketWatch newsroom. We'll be back next week with another new idea.